Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lissenby. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. It's so nice to see your face, Kate. It's been so long. (laughs) How are you? Um, What have you been doing this winter? I know you've sort of been everywhere, like Michigan and New Orleans, Asheville. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so good to see you. Just like our catch up. I I could have just like kept talking, but I know. (laughs) Um, Winter has been good. I, you know, spent some time in Michigan, like you said, and then did kind of a loop around the country like we were joking back to New York by way of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, when this airs, it will be Aquarius season. I will be newly 30 years old. Um, new decade. Yay. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to spend my birthday in Joshua Tree. And I'm really looking forward to some like winter desert magic. Never yeah. experienced that. But um, yeah, over solstice and Yule, I got to spend a bunch of time with my family and friends and Cody's family. We went to Marshall, which is my hometown in Michigan, Detroit for a wedding, a New Year's wedding for two of my beautiful friends, and then to Nashville to see my dad and to New Orleans to see Cody's family. And also had to stop by and say hello to the one and only Marie Laveau. Amazing. And then, yeah, we drove back up through the East Coast. We stopped by Hendersonville to see Shelby, the creatrix behind Tamed Wild. And then we drove home. So long drive, but I'm really happy to be home again, kind of like resting and working and writing. Um, my introvert side was was ready. <laughs> but yeah. what about you? What's going on? Well, like you said, when this episode airs, it will be the first week of February. But, you know, as of today, we are still trudging through January. And surprisingly, I've been spending a lot of time in the garden. Um, It's still Mm. like pretty, it's still pretty stormy out here in the Atlantic. But, you know, we've had a few beautiful sunny days in that liminal time between Christmas and New Year's. So I did some planting on the first of the year. Uh, strawberries and favage, um, which are like Portuguese beans that are really popular here. Yum. Uh, yeah, great for making homemade hummus, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have carrots in the ground right now, a bunch of pineapples, uh, a few trays of basil sprouts. So yeah, my green witch heart is so full. And um, I know I say it every year about this time, but (laughs) I am so looking forward to spring, especially as it relates to the garden and being the dirt witch that I am. Yes, to all of it. We actually tried a like a fava bean dish that is, I don't know, um, popular in Santorini when we were in Greece last fall. And it was really good. You liked it? I did. I mean, I don't think I ate anything there that I was mad at, though. 
I know. The food, <laughs> yeah, the food's so good. Yeah. Oh, I love that winter gardening. That sounds so nice. And plus you have your greenhouse too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that helps a lot. Can't wait to see it all for myself in real life. I know we always talk about that, but someday, not just through photos. I know. Same. We're just going to keep putting it out there until it happens. Mm-hmm. It's a spell. Yes. Uh, but for today, what's on the magic and alchemy agenda? So this conversation stems from a series of listener questions that we've received over the past maybe year here or maybe since the beginning of the podcast, um, just kind of asking us about different types of magic, you know, well labels like elemental witch or green witch or ceremonial magician or futurist witch can be fun ways to describe the different aspects of magic that we feel most drawn to. They have deeper roots, connections, and different threads to follow for exploration. So we thought we would break down a few of these categories and see what's happening underneath the surface. And because all the different types of magic could not be summed up in a single episode, this will be a two-part series. And even then, we are only going to barely scratch the surface of what magic can look like. Absolutely. There's always, always so much. Um, But Kristen, what type of magic are you going to cover today? Well, as a huge fan of plants and gardening, I'm going to begin our conversation with some thoughts on green magic. So listeners, if you've been out of the broom closet for a while or are fortunate enough to regularly mingle within witchy circles, you likely know someone who refers to themselves as a green witch. And if you don't, you do now because you'll hear both Kate and myself refer to ourselves as green witches, although that is just one aspect of our magical identities. People with animus beliefs or magical practitioners who engage with plants, the elements, earth, air, fire, water, spirit, which Kate is going to talk about a little later, flower essences, or if we incorporate sticks, stones, seeds, and other findings from the great outdoors into our rituals, this is a form of green magic. I think the practice of kitchen witchery and alchemizing plant medicine through homemade salves and tinctures and healing oils and other remedies can also bleed into this realm of green magic and green witchcraft. Absolutely. Let's get into it. There's a famous quote from the Swiss occultist Sergius Gallowin that says, the greatest magician is the one who best knows the secrets of the plants. I tend to believe that mythology and old stories are great places to start any magical research, no matter the subject. So when I think about those who teach us about plants, names like Hecate, Circe, Caridwen, Flora, and Demeter come to mind. These goddesses are known for casting powerful spells, but also for nurturing their enchanted gardens and adding to their already vast knowledge of plants. One of my favorite tales from Roman mythology that emphasizes plant magic or green magic, I often use these terms interchangeably, is the story of how Mars, the god of war and action and agriculture, came to be. In retaliation for Jupiter giving birth to Minerva without the help of his wife, Juno, 
Juno decides to do the same. She reaches out to Flora, the goddess of flowering plants, who is happy to abide. She waves an enchanted flower over Juno's belly, and shortly after, Mars is born. Yeah, and there's a really beautiful Flora piece in the goddess section of the blog, so for those who want to dive more into that story. Yeah, definitely. And another green witch for mythology is the Greek goddess Circe. When she's banished to the island of Aea, she survives by learning the names of plants growing around her new home and using them in her magical workings. She is most famous for turning men into pigs via the Odyssey, and if you read Madeline Miller's beautiful 2018 retelling, Circe, you'll see her love of and dominion over beasts, but also her adoration of plants. Miller Circe says, quote, The flowers, when they saw me, seemed to press forward like eager puppies, leaping and clamoring for my touch. I felt almost shy of them, but day by day I grew bolder, and at last I knelt in the damp earth before a clump of hellebore. A poisonous plant that's part of the buttercup family, in its antiquity, people used hellebore to poison their enemies, in some cases, and in others to treat, quote, madness. Perhaps the most famous reference to this is when the ancient physician Melampus used hellebore to cure King Argus' daughters from the madness of the Maenads. The Maenads were the female followers of Dionysus, who, in my opinion, especially after our conversation with Sophie Strand a few weeks ago, were definitely green witches, as was Dionysus with his flowering wand. I also, um, you know, in line with Circe and the beasts, I can't stop thinking about turning men into beasts as a blessing after that conversation, but maybe for a different conversation. (laughs) I know. I really enjoyed that reframing as well. And pivoting to some Celtic Welsh lore, Caridwen is a green witch who relies on her cauldron to bless, brew, and alchemize plants for her workings. In the tale of Taliesin, the bard who receives his poetic tongue when his alter ego, Gwian Bach, accidentally ingests one of the goddess's potions, Caridwen spends an entire year foraging for the perfect herbs that possess all the magic to inspire the receiver for many, many lifetimes. She uses these plants to brew Awen, a blend of wisdom and prophecy and poetry. In episode 37, when we spoke about the crone, I gave a longer retelling of the happenings between Caridwen and Taliesin, but even without knowing all the details of that story, when I think about the gifts that Alwyn offers, inspiration, wisdom, a poetic lens, I feel like these are all things that can be experienced through learning about, listening to, and divining with plants, with or without Caridwen's cauldron. In a 2022 article titled, FYI, There Are Many Types of Witches, author Carrie Ward says that green witches are, quote, magical workers who are all about nature, healing, and nurturing. They draw their power, tools, and rituals from the earth and the great outdoors and use plant, flower, and herbal preparations as a primary source of spell ingredients and ritual content. Green witches respect nature above all else, although many other types of witches work with nature too. 
If you feel drawn to the natural world, have a gift for healing and soothing, and enjoy gardening and tending to plants and herbs, you could be a green witch. End quote. In psychedelic mystery traditions, spirit plants, magical practices, and ecstatic states, authors Thomas Hatzis and Stephen Gray say that green witchery wasn't always as sugary sweet as it sometimes sounds today. It involved plants, of course, but just like candle magic or high magic or chaos magic, it's really quite versatile and bends to the will of our intentions. Hatzis says that invoking deities was a common goal when working with sacred plants, but they could also be used to raise the dead from their tombs, shapeshift, to stop someone from shapeshifting, to call up ghosts, tell fortunes, to heal, and to gain the affections of a lover. Skilled herbalists, witches, and priestesses produced many of these plant mixtures, which they sold to regular people for anyone or many more of the uses mentioned above. I love that book so much. I know. We have a lot of good book recs in this episode today. Mm -hmm. So book witches, if you're listening, um, we'll be sure to add those in our show notes if you're interested. And I'd really love to know what people in the witch web think, uh, but perhaps the reason plants are so versatile, in my opinion, is because they have been around since the dawn of time and have had eons to evolve and learn what humans need, or so the stories say. In braiding sweetgrass, indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants, author Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer discusses a creation myth about Sky Woman seeding the world. She says, I like to imagine that when Sky Woman scattered her handful of seeds across Turtle Island, she was sowing sustenance for the body and also for the mind, emotion, and spirit. She was leaving us teachers. The plants can tell us her story. We need to learn to listen. Mm, this book, too. You weren't kidding. <laughs> and another book. Um, <laughs> in Mirrors in the Earth, Reflections on Self-Healing from the Living World, author Asia Suler, uh, who was our guest in episode 74, says, quote, Our ability to converse with plants is ancient. It is a fluency that was basic to our ancestors, and yet the words for how exactly this conversation happens are hard to come by, perhaps because the communication itself isn't rooted in words, but in feelings that are as whole and subtle as scent. Mm. Yeah, listeners, if you haven't yet, definitely check out our conversation with Asia and also pick up Mirrors in the Earth. It is just such a piece of green witch artwork and I don't know Kristen but at some point I'm gonna feel really organized and I'm gonna compile a magic and alchemy season three reading list I think uh, please do I feel like a magic and alchemy reading list would be just gold so yeah I support this endeavor okay thanks I'm gonna need some emotional support so <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work mm -hmm. but it will be worth it because, yeah, mm -hmm. such a great collection. It's like a little digital library. It is. Listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> so when I think about what originally drew me to green magic, um, 
I think I'll agree with Asia Suler when she says it just feels so ancient. Like I'm continuing a story that was started ages ago. My love of plants might also have something to do with the countless hours I spent working, aka playing in my grandfather's garden as a child, but there is this sense that when you engage with plants and plant consciousness, uh, whether it's through wild crafting or cooking, tincturing, potion making, casting seed spells, decorating our altar with a cauldron filled with Caridwin's favorite blooms, uh, through plant meditations or simply gardening, that you are partaking in a sacred, time-worn ritual. Because we are. Our ancestors didn't go down to the local metaphysical shop to buy herbs for a spell. They harvested plants from their garden or foraged in the wild. They let their intuition guide them to the stone that was holding a story for them. They looked to the oak tree for strength and the evergreen for endurance. Our ancestors were the original green witches. I think there's this myth that everyone who's connected to the earth and practices green magic lives on a farm or is a witch in the woods, but of course we know that's not the case. Anyone with the desire to develop a relationship with the earth has the power to do so, no matter where their feet stand and no matter when they heed the plant's call. Green witch Robin Rose Bennett, who we had on the podcast in season one, episode 28, alludes to a similar sentiment in her book, The Gift of Healing Herbs, Plant Medicines and Home Remedies for a Vibrantly Healthy Life. She says, quote, I was not brought up to know the earth in intimate detail. No one I can remember from my childhood ever suggested that the land I lived on and was surrounded by contained anything important to me. My sense of kinship was connected to my house, my bedroom, my one almost personal space, my family, and my friends. I had no conscious sense of connection to the wild. The closest I came was that I deeply loved the trees in our small suburban backyard, end quote. And I remember talking to Robin after we recorded that episode, and I mentioned my hesitancy to rejoin mainland society or live in a city after living in the Azores, the greenest place I have ever called home. And she assured me that even if I leave, the connection I forged with the plant world will endure. It's just that initial entry point that we often need. In one of Robin's books, she talks a lot about cultivating this relationship in New York City and all of the rituals and work she's done in Central Park and in the city itself, which I just, just like think it's so special and such a good reminder for all of the city witches out there. Yeah, I really like that because when it comes to any type of magic, you know, there are entry points, mm-hmm. many of them, in fact. If we're looking for an entry point into green magic, we might consider visiting a wooded area, sacred grove, or a tree that looks like it's been around since the beginning of time, and making that time spent with the trees a part of our practice. There is a beautiful essay by Michelle May in Toshin's witchcraft book titled Enchanted Woods, and one of the passages from this essay reads, In many cultural mythologies, the forest serves as a gateway to the spirit world. 
Trees often form a natural circle or parcel of earth energy that concentrates the beauty of the locality and the force of elemental nature. These wonderlands contain an inexplicable force field, a well-known phenomenon all over the world, from the earliest history to the present. The passage goes on to say that ancient Greeks believed forests were portals, linking the world of gods with that of humans, and that within these sacred groves, trees were considered divine entities or ancestors. I think that's another thing I love so much about green magic is that it's so available. There is no gatekeeper and we don't need anything specific to work with plants and the earth beneath our feet other than a desire to do so and some patience. I know I mentioned forests and sacred groves just a moment ago, but it's worth mentioning that green magic is not limited to these spaces or any single space. These are just some of the more traditional ones. Wherever there is plant life, wherever the earth speaks to us, dreams through us, green magic flows. It exists in the deserts, icy tundras, atop mossy rocks, within tide pools and our seaweed-covered seas. We can create a magical green oasis in our house with the help of a few sunny windows and a packet of seeds. We can engage with these energies via our local community garden, by purchasing sustainably harvested herbs from our favorite apothecary, uh, shout out to the Tamed Wild Shop for like the most beautiful selection of herbs um, on their site. Be sure to check those out if you haven't seen them. Um, and you can also purchase pre-made plant medicine and plant magic from your favorite makers. You know, like sign up for an herbalism or foraging class to learn more about the history of sacred plants that grow in your corner of the world. Um, you know, there are so many entry points. Kristen, listeners, I would love to speak a little bit now about elemental magic, which I think weaves perfectly into these themes of green witchery. Earth, air, water, fire, and the more ethereal element of spirit, sometimes called void or even ether, make up the world around us according to the theory of classical elements. You may be familiar, listeners, with this magical worldview, as witches, magicians, and alchemists have long called on these elements in spells, rituals, altars, and to connect with the world through story and symbolism. So, why practice elemental magic? The classical elements appear in birth charts, in tarot decks, in planetary associations, in ritual spellwork, and ancient alchemical texts. And these thoughts don't just stem from one ancient worldview. Ancient cultures in Greece, Tibet, and India had similar lists varying a bit in terminology around these elements. These different cultures and even individual philosophers notable in those cultures had widely varying explanations concerning the attributes of the elements and how they related to observable phenomena as well as cosmology. Sometimes these theories overlapped with mythology of the culture of origin and were often personified in the deities of these specific societies and their stories. 
Some of these interpretations included atomism, but other interpretations considered the elements to be divisible into infinitely small pieces without changing their nature. While the classification of the material world in ancient India, Hellenistic Egypt, and ancient Greece into air, earth, fire, and water were more philosophical, during the Middle Ages, medieval scientists used practical, experimental observation to classify materials. In Europe, the ancient Greek concept devised by Empedocles no idea how to pronounce that, (laughs) sorry listeners, evolved into the system of Aristotle and Hippocrates, who introduced systemic classification into the area, which evolved slightly into the medieval system. So for the first time, Europe became subject to experimental verification in the 1600s during the scientific revolution. It's important to note that on February 17th, 1869, Dmitry Ivanovich Mendeleev, a Russian professor of chemistry, completed a periodic chart of the known elements. So, earth, air, fire, and water were not on this chart. However, our understanding of the world through the classical elements is not altered through these new discoveries. There is room for both science and magic here. In The Night School by Maya Toll, Maya writes, The four elements are symbols and glyphs that may help you read the patterns that you see in the world around you. Understanding their multi-layered usage, which is in turn built up a multi-layered symbolism, will help you interpret these building blocks when you run into them in a dream or divination. Studying the elements both as actual manifestations and as metaphor will take you deeper into the mysterious patterns of the night that humans have been tracking for a millennia. And to quote Robin Rose Bennett, always with our overlapping of sources, Kristen, I love it. Quote, remembering our relationship with the earth, air, fire, and water is part of humanity's common path of evolution. Because we are earth, air, fire, and water, we can use our reformed relationships with the elements to reestablish good relationships with everyone and everything, including ourselves. When we are in intimate touch with what is larger than ourselves, it helps connect us all. The technology of magic will obviously not and need not replace modern technology, but it has a great deal to offer. If we remember that these elements are part of the invisible underpinning upon which everything else rests, we will be wiser and more respectful, even in awe of life in its natural, quote-unquote, unimproved state, end quote. As one of Robin's apprentices, this is how I learned to call or cast a circle, working with these elements in a ritual incantation. However, this idea can also be seen exemplified in the pentagram, a symbol many of us will be familiar with. In witchcraft, the symbol is often used to show the balance between these classical elements. In Bohemian Magic by Veronica Varlow, quote, The pentagram is a five-pointed star that symbolizes air, fire, water, earth, and spirit. In Spectaculous Witchcraft, the pentagram point is a positive and powerful reminder of the four connections to the elements and to our own wild spirit and the spirits above. In Elemental Protection, the Pentagram, in Witchcraft by Maya Spalter, in Witchcraft by Toshin, 
Maya writes, quote, A pentagram is an equilateral, five-pointed star that symbolizes to many practitioners of witchcraft the unity and balance of five elemental focuses. Most often, in Western witchcraft practice, air, fire, water, earth, and spirit, or the self, although ancient and timeless in its pleasing geometry and the metaphorical resonance of the number five, fingers, senses, etc., the symbol was popularized in magical circles through its prominence in the key of Solomon, the king, a pseudo-ancient text that purports to be the grimoire of the biblical King Solomon, but more likely dates back to Renaissance-era Western Europe. In modern witchcraft, the pentagram is believed to represent the integration of the elements, a harmonious geometry that allows for the five elements to remain in balance. So, how can you incorporate these elements into your practice, you might ask, listeners? You might consider building an altar to each element over the course of a season or a year in order to reconnect and rebuild your relationship with these symbols. Or you could craft a single elemental altar, bringing balance to the altar by incorporating an object or dedication to each direction or element. You could work with the pentagram or work with other sigil magic, and you might consider writing your own invocation to cast your own magical circle. One of my favorite aspects of plant and elemental magic uh, is that these are free and available to us, even if just through our own minds. And this is much like you said, Kristen, there is no gatekeeper to working with these aspects of magic. We just have to give ourselves the permission and begin to listen. But there are also, you know, many tangible ways to work with these energies as well. As I mentioned, in my own practice, before I begin a spell or a ritual, I always call the corners or quarters, beginning in the east with the element of air, moving to the south, the element of fire, the west, the element of water, the north, the element of earth, and the above, the below, and the center, working with the element of spirit. To me, air magic is the energy of new beginnings. Associated with the East, air is the energy of thoughts and ideas. When writing, crafting poetry, or sharing ideas, air energy is being invoked. If you're building an altar or casting a circle, you may want to include the imagery of a feather, a horizon, or add a knife, athame, or writing utensil. To honor the air, though, all you really need to do is to step outside, plant your feet firmly in the earth, cast your face up toward the sun, and take a deep breath in, thanking the air for breath and for all that it brings. Take a moment to imagine this breath feeding the world and in turn, the world feeding you. Take a moment to imagine this breath feeding the world and in turn, the world feeding you in a constant cycle of interchangeable breathing. Fire magic is the energy of passion and desire. Associated with the South, fire is a driving force, a lit match, and a literal fire in your magical practice. To work with fire magic, burn intentions, call on fire to support release during a ritual, select red crystals for your practice. If you're building an elemental altar, you might light a red candle or add a red stone, and when casting a circle, use fiery or passionate language, call in desire, and say thank you to our sacred blood. 
To honor the fire element, cultivate a fire safely, tend to it and make offerings, gaze into the flame and say thank you for its powerful heat and its ability to strike awe into our hearts. I've been taught that water magic is the energy of deep emotion and dreams associated with the West and the setting sun. Water is a horizon in itself. Water is a powerful element to call upon when cleansing or calling in flow. Place a seashell on your altar or a small chalice or goblet of water. Work with a blue candle and connect to your psychic powers. We can ask water to take away what is not ours and to leave us more authentically ourselves. To honor the element of water, place some water under the full moon to charge it or collect water during a thunderstorm. Speak kind words and blessings over water to imbue the water with those sweet gestures of emotion. And I think Kristen, correct me if I'm wrong, but we talked more about that in our water magic episode, right? Yeah, I believe we did. Mm. That was a fun one. Mm-hmm. And then for earth magic, earth is the energy of being grounded and of Mother Earth herself. So associated with the North, earth guides us safely home. You can call in the element of earth in your magical practice if you're feeling lost or scattered. And the earth holds the bones of our ancestors and always knows the best solution. Earth supports us each step that we take, and you can place a favorite crystal or stone from a river on your altar, bring a bit of earth to work within a spell jar, or work with herbs as offerings to burn in your home. To honor the element of earth, you can say hello to moss outside, you can stop and greet your favorite tree, much like you mentioned earlier, Kristen. You can lay down in the park with your belly facing downward and just feel how held you are by the earth's magic. And then, finally, spirit magic. When working with spirit magic, you are truly working with the mysteries of the world and the forces that we cannot see. Spirit magic is the magic of the cosmos, the underworld, celestial beings, and the liminal. It is the energy and the magic that resides within our very soul, connecting us to all that is, has been, and ever will be. And that being said, the associations that you make for yourself will always be the most powerful, and that's why, listeners, I'm encouraging you to spend a bit of time with each element, much like you would in a new relationship, and listen to what messages of balance and wisdom and ancient reciprocity these classic elements may hold for you. However, Kristen, listeners, I think we're out of time for today, but I know that we would love to hear about your own experiences with green or elemental magic. So if you have stories, please reach out. And in the meantime, I'd love to close with this quote from Alia Walston, quote, witchcraft is a state of being. Our choices, thoughts, and actions are spells that we weave throughout all our day and lives. The craft, for me, primarily, is about being able to intentionally focus these energies. Magic is our essence and lives in everything. End quote. Stay tuned for Types of Magic Part 2, where we will be discussing chaos and ceremonial or high magic. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lisenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at 
podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode for a discussion on the goddesses of sex and war. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time. <laughs>